1 Kings chapter 18, if you'll turn there with me. Last time we didn't quite get out of chapter 18 together. Uh, if you were not here with us, we looked at quite a showdown, uh, if that could be used as a term of what would happen there in 1 Kings chapter 18, probably one of the most climactic experiences for Elijah the prophet. Remember we saw at the beginning of chapter 18 that after a three-year period of there being no rain in the land because Elijah had been praying, he sensed that this is what God wanted to bring uh, a drought upon the land which would contribute to a famine of course, trying to get the attention of the people of Israel and the wicked king Ahab and Queen Jezebel because of their idolatry and their great wickedness. Uh, God honoring his word retracted the rain. Uh, he sent Elijah to give mention of this. Remember, he walked in and told King Ahab that at his word, uh, there would no longer be any rain or dew upon the land. In three years now, the people have been suffering and languishing. Uh, there's a time of severe famine upon the land, and Elijah has really been off in hiding. God has kind of kept him tucked away. God's been working in his life in a personal way to develop character in his life. But now we saw the beginning of chapter 18, that after three years, it said chapter 18, verse 1, after that many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in that third year saying, go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab while there was a severe famine in Samaria. So we saw this experience now that took place these events in chapter 18 we went down all the way as far as around verse 40 or so as Elijah gets this conditional promise from God Elijah I will send rain it's now time for the rain to return upon the land but you must go courageously and present yourself to King Ahab to this wicked king who had been searching all throughout the land for the past three years from territory to territory, even going from nation to nation, looking for Elijah in wanting to put him to death and execute him because he's so angry because he sees him as the one who caused these things. And we saw that when finally Elijah presented himself to Ahab, that when Ahab saw Elijah, he said, is that you, O troubler of Israel? And Elijah then quickly rebuked King Ahab for saying this, saying, look, it's not me, but you who's troubled the land because you've introduced idolatry and wickedness and rebellion against God and you've caused the people to turn away from him. And remember, it was at that point Elijah then gave this challenge to Ahab and told him, look, I want you to go and gather all the prophets of Baal. I want you to gather together all the prophets of Asher that you and your wife not only have introduced into the land, but they actually were supporting them financially. Uh, the government was actually financing the corruption and the idolatry that was happening in the land at that time with these wicked prophets. And he says, meet me on Mount Carmel there and gather together the people of the nation as well. And remember that when they met there on Mount Carmel that day, before Elijah began to deal with the prophets and those who were leading the people astray, the first thing we saw he did in verse 21 of chapter 18 was he really challenged the people. And he said to them, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then serve him. And if Baal is God, then serve him. In other words, you need to decide. You can't live in both worlds. You can't have, well, I want to serve God a little bit, but then I also want to have these other idolatries and things that I'm going to serve here on the side, and, and God will have to timeshare with me. Well, look, God doesn't timeshare. 
Uh, God wants exclusive rights to our life. He wants our full allegiance. And so Elijah called the people really to a place of decision. He says, look, you're, you're wavering between two opinions. You're vacillating. You're being indecisive. And he's saying, you need to decide who do you want to follow. No more playing games spiritually. Choose who you want to serve. Choose who you'll be dedicated to. And the people were quite taken back by this challenge to their lives. And it's at that point, Elijah sought to begin to show that God was the one true and living God. Remember, he told the prophets of Baal, look, this is what we'll do. You go and get yourself a sacrifice and I'll take a sacrifice as well. And we'll prepare the sacrifice, prepare the altar, and then we'll each call upon our God and the true God. The God who is real will answer by fire and he'll send down fire to consume the sacrifice. Well, he let the prophets of Baal go first. And remember, they went through all their antics and preparing things and crying out. And then Elijah even started mocking them because their God wasn't answering and ultimately said, OK, that's enough of that. Obviously, your God must be busy or sleeping or traveling or something. He's just preoccupied. So he says, it's, it's time to call upon my God. And he built the altar there and prepared the sacrifice and the stones around it. And then, as we're told, at the leading of the Lord, he then says, hold on a minute. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to gather together, he told them, uh, uh, four water pots of water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and all the wood. So now again, he's saturating the sacrifice. He's, he's saturating the wood with water and making it in every way all the more impossible for anything other than an absolute miracle to happen in order for that thing to catch fire. And if that weren't enough, he then repeated the process. He said, do it a second time, do it a third time. And again, God, no doubt through this further growing and testing Elijah's faith is the Lord saying, Elijah, that's not wet enough. Do it again. Elijah, do it a third time. Make sure it's completely saturated. So now the whole trench around the sacrifice is filled with water. And it was at that point when it seemed seemingly impossible that Elijah prayed just that simple prayer. We saw Lord God, Abraham of Isaac, let it be known this day that you, that you are the true God, that you're the one and only true God and that it's you who has done these things and he says hear me that this people may know that you're the Lord and that you've turned their hearts back to you and at the culmination of that very simple straightforward prayer again he didn't have to dance around he didn't have to get hyper emotional he didn't have to cut himself and you know all these things that the uh, people who were prophets of Baal were doing none of that was necessary just a genuine simple humble prayer and verse 38 of our chapter said then the fire of the Lord fell consumed the burnt sacrifice the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench and when the people saw it they fell on their faces and said the Lord he is God the Lord he is God so this incredible experience the fire of the Lord as has happened on other occasions falls from heaven a divine fire God miraculously sends his power from on high down and not only does it consume the wood and the sacrifice but even the very stones Again, the Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. Even the stones just completely are eradicated by this incredible fire that comes down, God showing his power among them. The people cry out as they're terrified, no doubt struck with the fear of God, the Lord, he is God, or Yahweh, he is God. At that time, verse 40, we left off where then Elijah 
took, it says, those prophets of Baal, those false prophets, and according to Deuteronomy 13, he did exactly what God's word said, which was he executed them. And that was accordance with the word of God because God saw false prophets and those who led his people astray really as spiritual kidnappers. They were stealing God's children. And so God in Deuteronomy 13 said that they were to execute anyone who would lead them away from the worship of the Lord their God. And again, what you see Elijah doing is making no provision for the flesh. He leaves no opportunity for that. So they now execute these prophets and it's at that point having seen that incredible, powerful experience that's just going on of the power of God, verse 41, we pick it up where Elijah then says to Ahab, after all these events have gone on, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. So notice what happens. After dealing with the idolatry and seeing the power of God as the fire of the Lord falls from heaven in that event, at this point, Elijah now makes really just what is a prophetic utterance, if you would, regarding the promise that God had already given to him. Remember, in verse 1, what did God say to him? Go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain. So he has the promise of God. All these other events happened prior to that, but God's initial promise was, Elijah, I will send rain doesn't matter that it hasn't rained for three years i am going to send the rain and so now elijah emboldened in faith after what's just happened with the fire of the lord falling from heaven he prophetically announces to ahab listen i hear the sound of the abundance of rain so ahab verse 42 went up to eat and drink and elijah at this point went up to mount carmel and then he bowed down on the ground and he put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go now, look toward the sea. So he went and looked and said, there is nothing. And seven times he said, go again. And then it came to pass the seventh time that he said to him, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. In other words, get moving because eventually he's saying the roads are going to get flooded out when this downpour comes. And again, as there's a big rain, typically after there hasn't been rain for a while, it creates a, you know, just a very muddy and uh, potentially difficult traveling conditions. And it happened, verse 45, in the meantime, the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy rain, so Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. So Elijah, at this point, after making that announcement, it says, he tells Ahab, look, you might as well go eat and drink. Have yourself a meal. Because he says, God is going to bring about his word. And then you notice what he does. It says, Ahab, being a very, again, sinful, self-serving man, he goes and begins to just eat and drink and what does God's servant do he goes up and he begins to seek the Lord in prayer and it says there in verse 42 that he went up back up to Mount Carmel bowed down on the ground putting his face between his knees it's a picture of the posture that he was in as he was now on his knees with his face down between his knees just praying and pleading with God and he now begins to intercede and ask God to fulfill his promise, basically. And again, it allows us to see this reality, how God's servant must be willing at times 
to seek the Lord when others may be away serving their own interests because that's what that's what Ahab went and did. Ahab went to serve his own interests. He went to have a meal and, and you know, enjoy himself. And, and while others are serving their own interests, God's servant must be willing to sacrifice and to go and seek the Lord instead. And so there's Elijah. He's up on Mount Carmel. He's down and almost like a birthing condition. His face is between his knees. And he's just clearly beginning to plead with God. God, you said that you'd send the rain. Bring the rain. And here we see him in this position, no doubt demonstrating just his humility and his earnestness in prayer. He's laboring in prayer. He's strongly desiring to see the hand of God move in this situation. He longs to see God show his power and demonstrate his hand. So he's asking God to work. And of course, verse 42, just the posture of God's servant, their pictures, the humility of this man and the earnestness as he's pleading with God but then if that were not enough, verse 43, he then says to a servant as he's praying and, and pleading with the Lord in this humility, he says, go look towards the sea. Is there any evidence of a rainstorm coming? Do you see any indication? Look out over the Mediterranean Sea. That's typically where the storms would come from. So the servant went and he came back. And I'm sure this must have been difficult to hear. Uh, boss, nothing. <laughs> nothing. But I'm, I'm praying. Go look again. He comes back again the second time. Uh, still nothing. Third time. Four, and, and seven times, notice, persistently, seven times he says, go again. Go, uh, God promised. God gave his promise. So he's confident that God will honor his promise, that God will fulfill his word because God said to him, I will send rain. He here demonstrates not just humility and earnestness, but now you see faith and perseverance in prayer. Here's a picture of Elijah just in perseverance. He will not give up. He continues to pray and pray and pray and pray and plead with God. Why? Because he has God's promise. He's not just praying, Lord, if it be your will, you know, could I get a Mercedes? I mean, this is a promise of God. He has a clear promise of God. And because he has a clear promise of God, he knows that what God promises with his mouth, he is able to fulfill with his hand. That God is able to fulfill his promises and that God is unlike a man, he does not lie. And so if God is given a promise, God will fulfill that promise. So with a sense of conviction and earnestness and perseverance, he with humility just keeps pleading and pleading and laboring in prayer and believing, I don't know the timetable, but God will eventually do it. And so seven times he doesn't give up in prayer. He just keeps praying and crying out to the Lord and sending a servant. Go look again. Go check again. Go check again. Uh, again, just sending him back and forth here, trusting that God's going to fulfill his word. And again, I look at this and he, here's the quandary, right? Same chapter, just an event before this. Elijah's there on Mount Carmel. He puts water on the sacrifice and all that. And he doesn't have to pray on his face with his head down seven times for God to send the fire from heaven, right? What happened? I mean, it was a two-verse, two-sentence prayer. He prays a simple prayer and the fire of God falls from heaven. Now all he's doing is asking God to make it rain. That's a natural occurrence. I mean, that could almost be a fluke, Right? I mean, fire from heaven, that's pretty evident. That's a miracle of God. Fire doesn't fall from heaven and consume 
wood and even stones. That's the miracle. When he gets the miracle, one simple prayer, humble, gentle, simple prayer, and a miraculous thing happens. Now he's asking God to do something rather ordinary, just bring rain again. And the Lord lets him pray and plead the same thing again and again and again and again and again and again, just continuing to pray and persevere in prayer. And we look at that and you think, why does God one time do this miraculous, powerful thing with one simple prayer? And then on another time, God makes the same servant pray and plead and pray and plead and persevere and trust and persevere and trust and exercise faith and and plead for so long to bring about another promise the answer I have absolutely no idea (laughs) but the Lord's ways are not our ways And, and, and we're not called to live by explanations we're called to live by promises And so we walk by faith and not by sight. And and Jesus certainly wants us. It says that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. And the Lord, we have to understand, has his rays and has his reasons for working the way he does and ultimately is trying to develop our faith and is seeking to work and orchestrate things in us and not just for us and through us alone, but he's also working in us. And so here, Elijah just pleading in prayer and sometimes that's what we need to do. Sometimes we need to be willing to kind of, you know, put our head down and pray and plead and persevere and not give up in prayer, especially if we know that there's a promise of God that's in direct alignment with what we're asking. There are things that we know that the word of God says that we can pray with confidence. Lord, we know this is in alignment with your word. Lord, we know this is not. So, Lord, we're going to pray and we're going to continue to believe and trust. And so Elijah here in this beautiful way, seven times. I mean, this servant must have thought is, you know, Elijah just being a little over optimistic here. I mean, maybe did you hear wrong? But ultimately, it says, verse 44, then it came to pass. It ultimately came to pass. Here's the thing. What if he only prayed six times and he gave up? Boy, he would have missed out on something marvelous, wouldn't he? And sometimes, you know, I think we have to be careful. We don't want to give up too prematurely in prayer when perhaps we need to persevere in prayer for maybe some person's soul to be saved or some situation to have a turn of events or for God's promise to come to pass because ultimately seven, again, in the Bible is the number of completion, not perfection. It's the number of completion. So he's completed the amount of time of intercessory prayer that God desired in this set situation. And ultimately it came to pass. He came back and he said, there is a cloud, but notice as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. In other words, I see a little indication. I see a cloud, but it's really small. It's only about the size of a man's hand. In other words, I just kind of, if he put his hand up to the horizon, it just, that would block out the cloud. So it wasn't a big evidence, but there was some indication that something was about to happen and that just emboldened Elijah all the more to then send the message to Ahab, you better go get your chariot warmed up, buddy. (laughs) And you better get driving because the roads are about to get flooded and you're never going to make it to Jezreel if you don't get a head start because there's a storm coming. And God's going to send the rain. And again, just the total confidence of this. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, because it says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That's what Elijah is demonstrating there. To him, his faith was the substance, the reality of something that was still hoped for. 
It wasn't tangible. He didn't have it. It was something he was hoping for, and it was the evidence of something not yet seen, but he believed that God was able to deliver it. He believed that God was able to produce it. This is why James 5 encourages us by telling us what it does in regards to Elijah and his prayer life. Let me remind you, James 5, it says this. <clears throat> James 5, 16 says, The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months and he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit so again James does not want us to think that Elijah was some spiritual superhero that there was something uniquely so uh, you know, set apart about Elijah that in some way we would just never be in his category. The Holy Spirit prompting James to pen his letter says, look, Elijah, yes, he's the example that effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The effective, fervent prayer of any righteous man. And then he says, and listen, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. That as he wore his sandals the same way and he lived the same way, he had a human nature and weaknesses and, and imperfections, everything that we have as well. Listen, and, and we have the righteousness of Christ. Elijah knew nothing of that. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man. Well, how do I know if God's going to want to hear me because maybe I'm just... Well, listen, you're more righteous to a degree, you might say positionally, than Elijah was. Because you have the righteousness of Christ because of your faith and trust in him and his finished work. And so James is trying to say, listen, if, if God would work in that way for Elijah, God's no respecter of persons. Your prayer, your fervent prayer can be effective to the same degree. And Elijah prayed, God, restore and bring back that which is barren. And he says, and God honored it and did it. And so we want to learn from Elijah's life that there is value to the ministry of prayer. There is value to laboring in prayer. Certainly, I think it is probably one of the most difficult ministries because our flesh opposes prayer so much. And I think the devil seeks to discourage and distract us so much from it because it is the most valuable, effective ministry tool that we have. But yet so often in our flesh, we fail to be willing at times to really labor in prayer. To really ask God to move in ways that we cannot bring about something ourselves. And Elijah is such a great example. But again, there is nothing God did for Elijah by showing his power that he would not in love be willing to do for you and I as well. If it's in alignment with his purposes, if it's in accordance with his will, we can beseech the Lord and plead with the Lord and trust God to do powerful, marvelous things for us as well because Elijah was a person just like us. And that gives great encouragement to us in our lives that we don't read these things and think somehow they're disconnected from us. Now, we're going to see how Elijah is a man just like us. I mean, you were talking about the thrill of victory. And now the agony of defeat, that's where chapter 19 brings us. I mean, he sees fire fall from heaven. He, he defeats 450 prophets of Baal by one man together with God all by himself. He pleads with God and the rains return after three years. And it says, verse 46 of chapter 18, Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and he girded up his loins as he tucked up his long robe up into his belt so that he wouldn't be encumbered by it. 
And he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, Jezreel is about 20 miles approximately from where they are there at Mount Carmel. And it seems to be maybe a place where there was sort of a secondary or a winter palace of King Ahab. Uh, where ultimately at that time it seems that Jezebel was staying and Ahab now goes back to that area of Jezreel. But again, for what purpose this is, I really don't fully understand. The hand of the Lord comes upon Elijah and he begins to run and he actually outruns Ahab and his chariots 20 miles of a journey all the way there to Jezreel. Now, uh, again, obviously something clearly supernatural happens there because a man, he outruns chariots and horses of a king, a 20-mile journey. But again, why did that happen? I don't know exactly why, but the way it happened is very clear in the Bible because the hand of the Lord came upon this man. And when the hand of the Lord came upon this man, he was able to do things that were beyond his natural capacities. He was supernaturally enabled because the hand of the Lord was upon his life. How we need the hand of the Lord upon our life to enable us at times to do things that we simply couldn't do in our natural capacity. So he runs ahead. He gets there even before Ahab does. In chapter 19, verse 1 says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. So Ahab gives testimony to his wife of what happened. She wasn't there. And remember, she's just as wicked or more wicked than him. Look at verse 2. She wasn't going to back down. Ahab seemed to be a passive man. She was a fighter. Verse 2, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods... Do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So she puts out the death threat to him. She sends a messenger out and says, listen, tell him he's a dead man. If by tomorrow I don't see you dead, she says, may the gods do more so to me if I don't make your life as one of those prophets that you executed there and so she puts out this death threat to murder and to assassinate him. And one would think to read in verse 3, when Elijah heard this, he said, Are you kidding me, lady? I just saw fire from heaven. I just executed 450 of your prophets all by myself, me and the Lord. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and, and now one little woman's telling me she's going to kill me? Is this a joke or something? I mean, this is one of those, you know, humorous Hallmark cards. I mean, what is this? But instead, she puts out this threat, and all it is is a verbal threat. And verse 3 says, When he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba. Now, that Beersheba is all the way in the south, about 100 miles away. So now he's he just running as far away as he can from that area which belongs to Judah and he left his servant there. So notice what happens. Here this man, this incredible giant of faith who just exercised such faith to see God work in a powerful way. Notice God's servant who had great faith at this point what happens? He, he has a lapse of faith. He becomes fearful. And here he has such great faith to see God work in incredible ways and boldness and courage to stand up for God 
and do a mighty exploit for God. And now here's one woman threatening his life and he utterly just collapses in fear. And he just shuts down and becomes terrified and, and, and the enemy manipulates this voice in his mind and causes him to feel fear and anxiety and he starts to panic and stress out and he starts running for his life. And he literally just kind of abandons everything that he was to be and represent. He goes a hundred miles south now in fear. Verse 4 says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree would give a lot of shade and he prayed you can tell the condition he's in he prayed it says that he might die and said it is enough in other words i've i've had enough i can't take any more it is enough now lord he says take my life for i am no better than my followers boy what a very clear testimony that even great men of god at times are still just men at best and have lapses of faith and times of personal weakness and elijah now we see in this chapter what's happening he's struggling we're going to see with discouragement and with a sense of you might say very clearly what we would call today depression and 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 he's an evidence that even godly people who love the lord can struggle with deep measures of discouragement and despondency and depression and despair they go to very dark places his emotions are just you know crushing in upon him and just beginning to consume and overwhelm him so much to the point where he actually not only runs away and and sort of just abandons everything that he knows is right and he goes and isolates himself somewhere we'll see ultimately he goes and hides in a dark cave isolating himself and he's so desperate, he's so discouraged that he not only wants to just completely give up and stop trying altogether, he actually prays, God, would you just kill me now? Now, he's not being suicidal. He's not taking his own life. He's just praying, Lord, could you just end my life? I don't want to live anymore, God. God, would you just put an end to my life? I don't want to have to deal with this anymore. It's enough. I'm overwhelmed. And he's just utterly discouraged and he's completely depressed at this point. And his emotions are just on overload and his thoughts are just dark and they're completely just in complete you know, despondency at this point. And, and why? I mean, what, what is Elijah struggling with? Why? I think a few things. I think what Elijah is so depressed and so discouraged about is honestly that things did not go the way that he planned. Because think about it. He's thinking, man, when that fire of God fell from heaven and all the people saw and started saying, Yahweh is the Lord. He's probably thinking to himself, and then after the rains come, he's thinking to himself, this is going to produce a national revival, man. I mean, everybody's just going to start repenting and turning to the Lord and there's going to be a great awakening and they're going to dethrone Ahab and Jezebel and exterminate them and get them rid of the land and they're going to finish the job that I started with the 450 prophets of Baal. And what happens? It seems that though the people had an initial emotional experience out of the fear of God when they saw the fire of heaven fall, it seems that there's not a great amount of spiritual awakening Ahab and Jezebel are still very much in control. She's now just put a death threat out upon his life and he's thinking to himself, wait a minute, why is this going on? This didn't work out the way I thought it was supposed to. 
Why is there not a great turning to the Lord of the people of God? Why are people not repenting and and having a great awakening spiritually? Why are these evil people still in power? God, this isn't going the way I thought it would. This isn't happening the way I expected that it should. And sometimes, you know, that, that, that happens in our lives where we step into something and we're walking forward. And is it not true that sometimes we have unmet expectations? Ever have those happen? <laughs> You have this idea that you know, just sense it. it's going to go like this and we have these expectations and they may be good or godly expectations and then we find ourselves confronted with unmet expectations in our life and plans didn't go the way we thought they would go or the way that we think they clearly should go and that, that God could make them go and then even we find ourselves kind of wrestling with we, we also can't understand God why are you doing this? Or God, why aren't you doing what I know you're able to do? And no doubt Elijah's struggling with that. Elijah's not struggling with the fact that God doesn't have the power to act. He's struggling with the fact that he knows God has the power to act. And he's wondering, God, why aren't you doing something? God, you have the power. God, you just brought fire from heaven. You just demonstrated your incredible power. And Lord, I don't understand your wisdom. I don't understand what you're doing. And he's confused and he finds himself struggling, not understanding what God's doing. And certainly it seems to him on a human level, probably like all of his efforts are amounting to absolutely nothing. And look, I'll tell you, those are the kind of contributing things that when they start to weigh upon any person, I don't care who you are, close with the Lord or not, they can begin to contribute to a person starting to really struggle with getting discouraged in their soul. And starting to wrestle with depression. You know, you find yourself facing unmet expectations and things don't work out as planned and, and you can't understand why God's allowing something to happen or, or you're confused. Lord, I don't understand what you're doing, Lord. And, and you're wrestling and, and you're, you're wrestling with God and not understanding why God would work in the ways that he has or not work in the ways that you know that he could. And, and maybe you feel like, all the effort you've given to something where I put so much into this Lord, I put so much into this and it just seems like nothing came out of it Lord why would you let me put so much into this and I'll tell you those are the kind of things that boy with human logic and reasoning and emotions can really start to push a person into a dark place where you find yourself starting to feel very discouraged and, and maybe feeling very depressed and despondent in your life and that's where Elijah's at he just he's ready to just give up and look this is in some ways a, an encouraging reminder that we're all prone to this it can happen to all of us you shouldn't think if at times you have found yourself really struggling with the darkness of depression or discouragement that something's wrong with you you're human it happens at times as we wrestle through things and we don't understand the ways of God and what's unfolding or things didn't go the way we planned, these kind of things can cause our emotions and our minds to begin to wrestle. And so Elijah, he's struggling. But watch as this unfolds. Watch how God deals with him. God's not harsh with him. God's not, you know, you know kind of rough with him in regards to what's the matter with you? You're supposed to be my servant. You're supposed to be Elijah the prophet, the guy who calls down fire from heaven. What are you doing? Look how gentle and patient God is with him. Verse 5, it says, Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly there was an angel who touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals 
and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and then went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb to the mountain of God. So look at God's remedy here for someone who he sees is a very discouraged soul. Someone who's dealing with genuine depression in their thoughts, in their emotions. God is very gentle in his dealings. Do you see how gentle God is? How patient God comes and God gives him a little bit of food. He sends an angelic messenger to provide food and drink for him, no doubt. Again, Elijah's weary. He's exhausted. He's run down. And God's seeing that no doubt that contributes to things as well. God's patient with him in his struggle. He gives him time to work through his emotions. The angel of the Lord doesn't show up and just rebuke him or quote a Bible verse to him, right? Sometimes, who's not been the recipient of that? You're completely discouraged. You're utterly depressed. And some dear servant of God thinks the thing that you need is for you to quote to them a powerful Bible verse. And you're thinking, that is the last thing that I need to hear right now. I could quote my own Bible verse to myself. And here God doesn't do that. He doesn't show up and start rebuking him or making him feel bad for his discouragement or his depression. He just shows up and gently starts nursing him back to health. And he just lets him rest. He lets him recuperate. He's trying to refresh him, kind of helping to restore his well-being. Comes back gradually providing food. Hey, the journey's too much for you. I realize you're just overwhelmed right now. The journey's too much for you. And God graciously, mercifully, just lets him kind of gradually recuperate, gives him some nourishment. Ultimately, he regains some of his strength. He travels now to Horeb, which is the area of Mount Sinai where Moses was. And it says, verse 9, that he went into a cave. Now, that's, again, what's a cave? A very dark place. He retreats now into a cave, isolated all by himself, and he spent the night in that place. And behold, it's at this point now, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So, so the Lord ultimately lets him go through this process he patiently lets him kind of just work it through. He lets him kind of wrestle through it a little bit. He's not in a rush. He just, you know, letting him deal with it and work through it a little bit. And then finally he gets to the place where he's in the cave and he's there all alone. And then the Lord comes to him and all the Lord does is just ask him a searching question. He says, Elijah, what are you doing here? What, what are you doing? What are you doing in this place? And Elijah has no answer because the answer really is nothing. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing here. That's the whole problem. And here God is just asking him these revealing questions. I think that just, again, kind of calls him to just search out and evaluate. And he's, what, he, what God's doing is God's prompting communication because he knows what's one of the most therapeutic things when you're depressed and discouraged to just get it out of your system. And so God's going to let him just vent now. So Elijah answers verse 10. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets. God, aren't you aware of what's going on in the nation? Aren't you aware of all these horrible things? And he says, I alone am left. And now they seek to take my life. So he says, Lord, they're killing everybody. I'm the only one that's left. And now they're about to kill me. And you're about to be a non-profit business. You got that? Non-profit? Okay. 
just, 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 just trying to keep you awake. So he says, God, aren't you aware of what's going on? The hardships and the problems and the challenges and, and what's happening? Elijah at this point, and this is what happens when we become very discouraged and depression starts to set in on our mind and our emotions, it is we just start to see things through sort of a narrow lens and all we see is everything that's wrong. Right? That's all that Elijah can see right now. Can he see anything right? All he says when he expresses himself is, Lord, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and this is bad and this is bad and it's about to get worse because all these other bad things are going to happen too. They're going to take my life and then they're going to kill me and this is what happens when we start to get depressed and discouraged. We somehow lose perspective of any of the good things in life. Any of the good things God is doing, anything we should be thankful for and appreciative of, and instead we get like laser focused on everything dark and negative as our mind is just kind of in that mode. In verse 11, then God said to him, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rock in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it, that is the still, small voice, he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him. And again, the same question, what are you doing here, Elijah? So at this point now, the Lord begins to manifest himself to Elijah because he knows the greatest help to any of us when we're in a dark place is to have an experience and encounter with God. That the Lord would be able to lift his soul and bring him out of the cave and out of the darkness and back into the light. And notice, God begins to, to, to move in such a way where it says, verse 11 there, a strong wind came and tore through the rocks and then an earthquake, another demonstration of the power of God. And then again, a fire, but the Lord was not in the strong wind. He wasn't in the earthquake and he wasn't the fire. In other words, these dramatic, powerful things happened. But the word of the Lord and the manifestation of God was not in these dramatic, powerful things. And then after that, it says, Elijah heard a still, small voice. And that's what the Lord was in. It was the still small voice of the Lord ultimately where Elijah heard something from God that he needed to hear in this process. And I think no doubt God is trying to train Elijah as he does us as well sometimes is that sometimes God's not working in the way that we anticipate he should be working or the way that we expected that he should be working. And again, look, fire and earthquake and wind these were all ways in which God in prior times had manifested himself powerfully like Moses on that same mountain Horeb Mount Sinai the fire of God the pillar of cloud of fire and, and all these ways and these are ways that the people of God knew that God showed his power and what God is saying to Elijah is Elijah listen I may not always work the way that you expect I should work Elijah, don't think that I'm just in the big and the dramatic. Where's the fire from heaven, God? Where's the... And he says, Elijah, sometimes I work in still, small, simple ways that often just get overlooked by people. And, and sometimes I think we make the mistake, we, we think that God's only in the dramatic. 
We think that God's only in the powerful, the miraculous, these you know, big dramatic events when the reality is, is that sometimes the word of the Lord and the way of God is just in a simple, small impression that he brings to our heart. And we need to learn sometimes how to be still and know that he's God and hear his still, small voice. And sometimes the most powerful, clear things God says to us, he says to us in just a still, small voice. And how God wants us to learn to be able to hear his still, small voice in that intimate way to realize, yes, he's a God of power, but he's also a God of great personal intimacy. And we need to be open to hearing the still, small voice of the Lord because I'll tell you, that is the thing. That is the thing. Listen, I, I'd love to see God you know, shake the earth and bring fire and move in a mighty wind, but there is nothing like, nothing like being in a place where you hear the still, small voice of God and you know that God is whispering something to you. And you know the voice of the Lord is saying something to you in a personal way in a still, small whisper. You hear him convey something to your heart. And it's exactly what you need to hear in that hour of darkness or depression or desperation. It's just the thing that you need to hear in your life. And Elijah's learning this lesson as God's nursing him back to health and bringing him back around. Verse 14, Elijah again answers, Lord, he says the same thing. I've been very zealous because the children of Israel, verse 14, have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. And again, he says, and I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Again, he's at that spot where he feels like he's the only one being this faithful to God. You know, sometimes we all do that as God's servants. Sometimes we think, uh, you know, I, I, I'm the only one that's this faithful. Why isn't anybody else as committed as me? Why isn't anybody else? I'm the only one. Woe is me. I'm the only one faithful to Jesus. I'm the only strong Christian. Everybody else, and, and we kind of get to that place, and we self-pity, and we begin to kind of magnify ourselves in an unhealthy way. And the Lord said to him, verse 15, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king of Syria. And you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, anointing a new leader in the north. And then Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel, you shall anoint as prophet, notice, in your place. You're now going to have an apprentice who you'll groom and prepare to ultimately replace you in your ministry. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elijah will kill. Yet, God says, just so you know, Elisha, he says, I've reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So in other words, he says, Elijah, look, first of all, let me clarify something for you. You're not the only one. <laughs> it's really not that dependent upon you, Elijah. I appreciate your enthusiasm, but Elijah... I have resources and I have things available and I have things at work that you know absolutely nothing about. And sometimes, boy, I'll tell you, as he says, I have 7,000 prophets who didn't bow the knee to Baal, contrary to what you think. I think sometimes the Lord has to remind us in our depression, listen, I have things over here that you know nothing about that I'm planning on doing, that I'm planning on working through. And a lot of times that's our problem. We have this limited perspective. Oh God, the world, you know, how's it going to happen and the world's coming to an end? And sometimes God has to say to us, listen, are you kidding me? Do you know how many options I got over here in the dugout? I got 7,000 options to bring this to pass. You're thinking you're the only option? 
Are you kidding me? Did you forget I'm God? I got 7,000 options over here. And just to encourage us, again, sometimes the Lord has to remind us and kind of you know, bring us back into perspective a little bit. And notice, if you would, in verse 15 down through verse 17, what is the Lord basically doing for Elijah? Because look, this is one of the ways that the Lord is helping him overcome his depression. He says, I want you to go out and there are a few things I want you to do for me. Here's basically what the Lord is doing. Saying, Elijah, you're sitting in a cave, you're depressed and you're discouraged. You know what one of the steps is to get yourself out of your depression and discouragement? Elijah, go get back to work. Elijah, go do the next thing. Because I'll tell you something, idleness is a breeding ground for depression. And sitting in caves and being in dark places and isolating yourself and thinking it and rethinking it and thinking it and rethinking it and thinking and rethinking does nothing productive. It's just destructive to your mind. It's destructive to your emotions. So he says, Elijah, here's one of God's remedies for depression. Go get back to work. Go get busy again. Get back to doing what you're supposed to be doing. Just go do the next thing. You don't need to have all the answers. Just do the next thing. Go anoint these next few people. Go find your replacement and those who I have in store for you. And we'll see that Elijah ultimately will do this as he now goes and finds Elijah, his servant, who will be someone who comes alongside of him. But listen, I think this chapter is such a great reminder for us to realize that we all have human weaknesses. And there is nothing shameful. Listen to me. You do not be ashamed if at times you find yourself discouraged, depressed. Sometimes as Christians, I, I think we do a great disservice. We almost give the, the sense to people that if you're a really spiritual, solid, strong Christian, you should never struggle with fear or depression or discouragement. Listen, we, we, we all wrestle. We have a human nature. And at times, we're all prone to these weaknesses in our lives. The difference is this. The answer that we know for depression, for discouragement, for struggle with our thoughts and our emotions and our feelings, the answer we know is called God. That God is able. That God's able to help us. And that we can find the ability through God to be more than conquerors over our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions. It's normal to struggle. But let God help you process it. You worship your way through it. You pray your way through it. You lean on other people as you walk your way through it. Don't just give up or surrender or think there's something wrong with you or you need something beyond the power of God to help you through that process. God created you. He knows you. He can help you with your thoughts. He can help you with your emotions. And it's a normal process we see happening with the servants of the Lord in their lives at times. And God will lead you through it and take you out to the other side. Keep your eyes on Him. Let's stand. Let's pray together.